Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Kindred is a powerful and enduring novel written by Octavia Butler. A miniseries based on the book will debut on Hulu on December 13th. So today we're listening back to our Talk of Iowa book club conversation about Kindred. The book was first published in 1979, and it takes place in 1976, our nation's bicentennial. It's a sci-fi novel, but it's also historical fiction. The main character is Dana. She is a 26-year-old black woman living in Los Angeles trying to make it as a writer. Her husband, Kevin, is also a writer. He is white and a little older than Dana. As they're settling into a new house together, Dana finds herself suddenly transported through time and space to the antebellum South. In the past, she encounters her ancestors and has to figure out how to survive and how to help her ancestors survive as a young black woman in a slave state. To start the conversation, Lakeisha Johnson is here. She's an associate professor and department chair of gender, women's, and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. Hello, Lakeisha. Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for being here. And would you start us off by reading just a small section of the book? This is from early in the novel, from the chapter The River, and it's At that scene that I mentioned, Kevin and Dana are moving into their home together. They're putting books away on a shelf. And that's when Dana is first pulled into the past. I bent to push him another box full, then straightened quickly as I began to feel dizzy, nauseated. The room seemed to blur and darken around me. I stayed on my feet for a moment, holding on to a bookcase and wondering what was wrong. Then finally, I collapsed to my knees. I heard Kevin make a wordless sound of surprise, heard him ask, what happened? I raised my head and discovered that I could not focus on him. Something is wrong with me, I gasped. I heard him move toward me, saw a a blur of gray pants and blue shirt. Then just before he would have touched me, he vanished. The house, the books, everything vanished. Suddenly I was outdoors kneeling on the ground beneath trees. I was in a green place. I was at the edge of a woods. Before me was a wide, tranquil river, and near the middle of the river was a child splashing, screaming, drowning. I reacted to the child in trouble. Later, I could ask questions, try to find out where I was, what had happened. Now I went to help the child. That is how Dana's adventures begin in Kindred by Octavia Butler. And Lakeisha, tell me first, what is your relationship with this novel? Oh, wow. Um, I'm a big fan of Octavia Butler's. Um, I was introduced to her work. um, I would say, I think I was in high school when I read Wild Seed and really appreciated, you know, appreciated just as a fan. Um, And then later in graduate school, I had the pleasure to take a class with Valerie Lee at The Ohio State University, and she taught Kindred in her course, um, specifically on Black women's literature and thinking about issues of gender and racial justice. Um, So it, it was, you know, those were the two sort of introductions, but I think now her work means even more to me. 
um, being a professor and actually I, I taught parable of the sower this um, past term. And so I just think that there's so much um, important information about like what it means to be a black woman in the United States in the past, um, in the present and perhaps in the future. So it, it means quite a bit to me right now. I will admit that the first time that I heard of Octavia Butler was when she died. I read an obituary and I was like, who is this woman? How have I never heard of her work? So for people who haven't had that introduction, Lakeisha, who is Octavia Butler? Oh, gosh, she's she's a giant. I mean, or was a giant, um, should I say, although I think that her legacy um, outlives her. I mean, she was the first black woman to integrate a very white and male science fiction community. Um, you know, uh, as I was looking at sort of how she talks about herself or how she talked about herself, um, you know, she talks about all the sacrifices that her mother made in order for her to become a writer. And it was her mother talking to her, you know, at, at the age of like nine or 10 about the fact that she could be a writer. And um, I found this interview that she had with Jelani Cobb in the um, 19, I think it was like 1994, where she actually talks about who she is. Um, and I believe this was also on the original cover of her book, uh, Parable of the Sower. So if, if you don't mind, I could just read this sure. quote, which I think is a great summary of like who she is, because, and it's from her own perspective. She says, who am I? I am a 47-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer and who expects to someday be an 80-year-old writer. I am also comfortably asocial, a hermit, a pessimist if I'm not careful, a feminist, a Black, a former Baptist, an oil and water combination of ambition, laziness, insecurity, certainty, and drive, right? And I just... You know, I read that again today and I was just thinking, wow, um, not that far from uh, 47. <laughs> and we lost <laughs> and we lost her way too soon, yeah. Charity. Um, yeah. You know, she I wish she had to lived to be that 80 year old writer. Yes, yes, exactly. So um, I read her work um, with awe, but I also, you know, it's like um, bittersweet because I just think of like, what what more could she have given us? Although I think that what she already provided is so rich. And I think part of the reason that it took me so long to be introduced to her is because I'm not a sci-fi reader. And so I think that the the work kind of gets siloed in the sci-fi world. And I'm not trying to use sci-fi as an insult. It's just not the genre that I'm I'm normally drawn to. And I also think it's not a very good descriptor because it's such a huge <laughs> umbrella, you know. Um, but I I think that that maybe obscured her from my view for a long time. But I know, Lakeisha, you're a huge sci-fi fan. And, and these, mm -hmm. these books are extraordinary sci-fi books. They're also extraordinary books, period. Mm -hmm. And Octavia Butler is the reason why I read sci-fi. <laughs> This is how I judge all other science fiction, you know, um, whereas other people might be more familiar with the canonical, you know, white male um, 
genre. Absolutely. Well, and and as I said, this book is is sci-fi. It is also historical fiction. And I saw a conversation, people saying, well, I don't really get into sci-fi. I'm not sure if I want to read it. And And part of me wanted to say, well, would you dismiss Jane Eyre because it's sci-fi? Would you dismiss Wuthering Heights because it's sci-fi? I mean, it's it's just mm-hmm. it's a great book with some magical realism or you know and with yes. time travel. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and the time travel is so powerful here. I mean help us understand kind of the uh, the core question of this novel because that time travel helps us explore it in some really powerful ways. Yeah. Oh, gosh, this is a tough one, because I think there are so many things that the novel asks us. Um, But I'm thinking the question that I'm coming up with based on my experience living during a pandemic, during this, you know, huge um, movement for black lives. um, You know, my the question that came to me when I read it again, um, after reading Parable of the Sower and some other neo-slave narratives was, you know, am I my brother's keeper? And not just am I my brother's keeper, but am I my brother's keeper in the context of a system of oppression, degradation, torture, you know, racial, racial and gender violence, you know, in that context, am I my brother's keeper? Um, and in this case, we're talking across racial lines as well, right? We're not simply talking about a community that we imagine as black and enslaved, right? There's a lot more going on here um, in terms of who my brother or my sister is um, in this context. Yeah, and I and I think we can reveal that 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 little boy that was in the river drowning is a, a little white boy, Rufus Whalen, who turns out to be one of her great great grandfathers. So this is one of her ancestors, and she is pulled back in time, she discovers, to protect him, to keep him alive, to, I guess, to protect her family line and uh, secure her own existence. But now here she is, connected intimately to this boy and later a man who is part of a family of slave owners. Yes. And I think it's a metaphor for the family drama that we find ourselves in as African-Americans in America. And it's, it's an old story. And I think now, given the pandemic and given everything that's been happening um, around police brutality and all those things, it's even more important for us to grapple with who we are to each other, right? And what is our responsibility? To what extent does you know, my survival depend on my relationship to other citizen subjects in the United States. We will explore that theme a little bit deeper and and so many others in just a moment. With me now is Lakeisha Johnson. She's an associate professor and department chair of gender, women's and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. We are talking about Kindred by Octavia Butler. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club from Iowa Public Radio. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're listening back to our Talk of Iowa book club conversation about Kindred by Octavia Butler. A miniseries based on the novel debuts on Hulu on December 13th. Kindred tells the story of a young Black writer named Dana. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Kevin, and finds herself pulled into the past repeatedly to a slaveholding plantation in Maryland that is home to two of her ancestors. With me, Lakeisha Johnson, an associate professor and department chair of gender, women's, and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. And it's time to meet our other expert readers. Akwi Inji is an artist, poet, and storyteller who lives in Cedar Rapids. Hello, Akwi. Hi, Charity. Hi, Lakeisha. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you all. Well, thank you so much for being here. And Akwi, you actually used to teach this book to high school students. So tell me a little bit about why you chose to teach Kindred and what, how your classes responded to it. Yeah, it was, a, you know, it was such an accessible book from a variety of angles. And it was because it was it was an opportunity to come at a, ver- a variety of themes from a couple of different angles. If our primary focus was on themes of race or gender or power, we could take that angle with an opportunity to also discuss um, slavery, right? And then if it was African-American history and culture, we could go at it from the angle of history first and then talk about these themes of power. So it was just a really accessible um, tool to, first of all, get students engaged in really well-done, well-written, beautiful, poignant, and important literature that, um, that addressed a variety of themes and was... Um, a really accessible opportunity to take a close look at race relations in two completely different time periods. Um, so yeah, it was it was always a joy. It was one of those books that I um, anticipated reading with all sorts of eagerness with my students because I knew I wasn't going to have to sell them on it. I knew that the moment they started reading it, they were going to just dive right in and have all kinds of questions and be immediately engaged. So it was, a, it was a really cool experience. Well, and this time we recruited you to, to read it with us and then recruited your daughter, 14 years old, who we will introduce in just a second to be another expert reader on the show. So you got to read it with your daughter. Is there anything this time through that, that hit you in a different way? You know, it was really a pleasure to read this time through without the context of of then having to to teach it, quote unquote, in a classroom. Um, there were themes that I was I was able to immerse myself in in more depth than I would have probably, I think, when I was teaching it eight, 10 years ago. And then being able to um, recognize that this is an opportunity to have conversations with a 14 year old, uh, my daughter, in the context of themes like home and family uh, has been a real pleasure. But I'll also say we've been really careful to not 
talk together too much about it because I sort of wanted to save some of that for this experience. And then after this, I'm really excited to dig into deep conversations with her. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, Amaya, we will bring you into the conversation now. Amaya Dawson will be a freshman at Cedar Rapids, Washington in the fall. She is also Akwi's daughter. Hello, Amaya. Hi. So give me your, this is your first time reading Kindred. Give me your reaction to it. Um, I will say that uh, the biggest thing I felt while reading it was just like, like putting on a VR headset. Like I couldn't, like I didn't like, it wasn't like I was like there, there, but like it, like it felt like I understood it better than maybe doing like a written assignment in a classroom about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It sort of plunges you back into the past. And we will talk about how Butler uses empathy in so many different and interesting ways in this novel. But uh, Maya, so it felt like, although you've learned about this part of Black history, this felt like you learned more, even though you weren't reading a history. Yeah. It, it felt like I could really, really know what it was like, especially like back then, especially because it went into so much detail about a lot of things that, probably wouldn't have been brought up in a while talking about it in a classroom or something like that. It just felt so real. I think uh, remembering the classrooms that I used to sit in, one of the first things that happened in those classrooms when we learned about slavery and this period in our country and and other terrible atrocities, like when we learned about the Holocaust, you know, there would be this conversation of, well, if I lived then, I would have done this. I never would have stood for that. I never would have tolerated this. And Amaya, I think in in some ways, this book is a response to that, that kind of thinking. Well, if I lived during that time, this is how I would have responded. I mean, Dana and Kevin, who later also travels back in time, they suddenly are faced with those decisions, aren't they? A very common question that people bring up that doesn't make much sense is, oh, why didn't they just run away? Why didn't they fight back and stuff like that? And I I, I remember in earlier years, I, I was thinking the same thing. And reading this book really, like, shows you this is why. It's because, like, doing that is risking your life, like, on a huge level. So, like... It's sometimes just easier to play it safe. Right. Well, and and as uh, we'll talk about, there are so many different ways that power is wielded in this novel. I want to talk, before we really dive into that, I want to talk about the main character, Dana, who, as I mentioned, she's a 26-year-old Black writer, and she's very independent. She has very little family. Her, Her parents have passed away long ago, and she was raised mostly by her aunt and uncle. And so here she is. She's on her own. She falls in love with Kevin, and and during the book, we get flashbacks into the early part of their relationship. But Lakeisha, let's talk about Dana. And and who she is, because I, she's such an incredibly compelling person, I feel. Oh, yeah, she's really compelling. And again, I think I, because my my work centers around representations of black womanhood, I often turn to like when I when I see a character like Dana, I want to say, OK, so what archetype of black womanhood are we looking at here, right? Like to some extent, I think Octavia Butler plays around with the idea of the strong black woman, right? So, and again, there's a neg- there's a p- both a positive and a negative 
um, aspect to that controlling image of black womanhood that, you know, it is black women who have the strength to survive, you know, these horrible, um, these horrible situations and to actually be the force of salvation for others, right? Um, you know, so that narrative was very much, it has been very much out in the public sphere. And so for me, I see Dana as an opportunity for us to see um, a strong black female character who is complex, who is, who is strong, but who suffers incredibly um, in the face of this fantastical you know, experience of being transported into the past, right? And not really know, and having no control over that, right? Um, and, and so in terms of power, right? Like she, she shows how power works in a system where you have um, white men who own property at the top <laughs> and black people um, at the bottom. We get to explore the society on different levels with the, the white men, the white women, the free black people, mm -hmm. the enslaved people. We get to explore this, this culture in such an in-depth way. But I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that Dana is idealized by a couple of the men that she encounters in her life. But she seems to have so much clarity of understanding of herself, of her strengths, and of her weaknesses that I, I felt like that was a really beautiful part of how she was portrayed. Akwi, do you have anything to add? One of the things, Lakeisha, you just mentioned um, her, her lack of control and lack of power, even over time travel. And I just, I, I just think there are so many layers of, um, of that kind of uh, exploration of power and control that even something like that doesn't have control over time travel doesn't have control over where she's placed when she's when she travels through time so i just i i think it's interesting because yes those things that you were just describing in terms of this black female protagonist are true and there's so many ways that butler disrupts that that archetype you know, and I think quite intentionally with, with Dana as well, um, that disruption is what happens when so much of these social constructs are stripped away from us, right? What happens really to who we are and to, and to our concepts of power, even with this particular sort of archetype, um, when some of these social constructs are, are stripped away? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what do we take with us to survive the transport, right? Like I was just rereading the part about the bag where she's not really sure if this is going to be the last time that she's taken back or if there'll be another time. And, and she's had more time with Kevin in, in the seventies. And he's like, why do you keep holding on to that bag? And it's like, excuse me, as a black woman, I don't have a choice. Like yeah. that bag, that, that toolkit is always at the ready, right? Because you never know what situation you're going to be brought into that will require you it could mean your survival, right? Your literal life. And I think, you know, when you think about what happened to Breonna Taylor, I mean, she literally was taken out of this world in a split second by agents of the state, right? In the same way that, you know, Dana is just in a split second, her whole reality has changed. And part of that funk is a part of that is a, um, a result of her, of her um, embodying 
black womanhood in a context where racism, where gender violence, where homophobia, where all the different isms are actively engaging us, right? And she can't escape that in either time period. Yeah, yeah, there is I know. no. Well, and what you were just describing, her having to sort of explain to Kevin why why she won't let go of this bag, there was so much of that sort of subtle education happening from Dana to Kevin, and it started at the very beginning. Um, and so just even that is, you know, to what degree is this experience just in the context of race and gender, gender so disparate, we're constantly having to educate the other. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even even those who are close, who 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 are family. I mean, Kevin is her family. She has chosen him as family, but he's also white and he's also male. Mm-hmm. And those dynamics of who he is are constantly at play at every level. For me, reading the book for the second time and the, the first time through, because it's an amazing read. In addition to all of these things that we're breaking down, these different themes and elements, it is a story that just pulls you along. And I found myself the first time I read it, I read it so fast because I I wanted to know what was going to happen next. And in the second time I read it, I was able to take a breath and, and look more closely at what was going on. So when Dana is communicating to Kevin in 1976, talking about race in their culture. And he's a man who believes in equality, who believes in equity and and is still incredibly blind to the racism that she lives with every day. I also felt Butler talking to me. (laughs) She very clearly was intentionally sharing this information. Uh, Amaya, we read these parts about the 1970s. And at least Lakeisha and I remember the 1970s, <laughs> at least some we of them. Were kids. Right? We were kids, though. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, this is a time period. It's become historical fiction on a couple of levels for you because, of course, the 1970s are ancient history for you. I don't go past two th- 2008. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so thinking about Kevin and Dana in that culture, the way people treated them, the things that were happening, the way Kevin acted to Dana, what was your reaction to that relationship? And and really, it felt felt very much like the 1970s to me. There are two things that I had like separate reactions to. Um the first thing being like just Kevin's like just seeing how he like how how much Dana has to explain to him about like stuff like that like like especially the bag thing there are a lot of things where I think it'll be like common sense something everyone should know especially in regards to things like race and gender and stuff like that and then I realize um it's common sense to me because it's something I like understand just because of who I am and like stuff like that. So I, I guess th- throughout the book, it showcased a lot on how there were so many things he was kind of un- educated about. Right. He this. had some pretty big blind spots, although he was, yeah. he was well-meaning. Did you like him? Yeah. I liked him a lot. I liked him as a character. He's, he's well, he's a well-meaning dude. Um, I, I, and a lot, of, and I think a lot of people in real life are like that as well, where they're well-meaning, but as you said, they have blind spots. 
We will explore this a little more deeply in just a moment. We are talking about Kindred by Octavia Butler. Amaya Dawson will be a freshman at Cedar Rapids, Washington in the fall. Akwi Inji is an artist, poet, and storyteller who lives in Cedar Rapids. Lakeisha Johnson is an associate professor and department chair of gender, women's, and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're listening back to our Talk of Iowa book club conversation about Kindred by Octavia Butler, a miniseries based on the novel debuts on Hulu on December 13th. Kindred tells the story of a young Black writer named Dana. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Kevin, and finds herself pulled into the past over and over again to a slaveholding plantation in Maryland that is home to two of her ancestors. With me is Lakeisha Johnson, Associate Professor and Department Chair of Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies at Grinnell College, Akwi Inji, a poet, artist, and storyteller, Amaya Dawson, a student at Cedar Rapids, Washington. She is also Akwi's daughter. And I want to talk about power because Dana gets to experience this power dynamic in so many ways. And I feel like Octavia Butler illustrates it in a way that almost no one else ever has. She just explores it so deeply. Akwi, of course, you have the basic power structure. We know that in the antebellum South, white men held all the power. They held the land. They owned people. Basically, they owned their wives as well as slaves. These are the people with all this power, but it's so much more complicated than that. Well, and it's so much more complicated because it depends on what type of power you're talking about, you know? So, um, you know, there's so many different forms of power, intellectual power, emotional power, um, economic power, physical power, and, and even physical power in the sense of not only just physical strength, but also the physical power to give and take life, give life through birth take life by, by, by ending someone else's life or your own life. And so there's all these different forms of power. And then the way those forms of power interplay in the context of race, gender, time period, class, right? And it's all so dynamic. I mean, that's the thing that throughout the entire novel, depending on where she is and when she is, um, and Dana is just one example, every single character experiences this dynamic energy of power, even in the context of location on the plantation, whether you're in, you know, depending on the attic or someone's bedroom or the library. So um, I just get so fascinated when I think about the different ways that Butler explores levels of power and how that power um, plays out depending on these other these other sort of intersectionalities. Well, and the fact that we see uh, people who are enslaved, but we also see free black people and we see how the whole structure of society 
enslaves the free black people as well. Even though they are not, quote, slaves, their movement is also controlled. They are in danger at every moment. And and we feel that viscerally, Lakeisha. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I was I was thinking we probably should talk more a little bit more about Alice, who is also Dana's um, other relative in this in this time that she's um, in this place that she's transported to and her status as a free black person is placed in jeopardy by the fact that she has fallen in love with a man who is enslaved right and so he she she is able to be a mother she is able to choose motherhood and know that her children will not be born um, in captivity right and so it becomes an issue of economics you know um, for the the white slaveholder um, seeing that relationship as a threat to his economic power, right? Um, and I think, you know, this book came out in the 70s, 1973, you have the historic case of Roe versus Wade. So, you know, the, the idea or the discussion about women's control of their bodies, and then thinking about how that plays out when you add the layer of race, right? Um, you know, who gets to be a mother you know, how is your status as a mother then passed on to your child? Um, and obviously during that time period, she was able to lose her status as a free person because she chose to facilitate the escape of her husband. Then she became um, enslaved herself, right? It's just because she had violated um, the rules in terms of, you know, how far a person of African African descent could go in the context of slavery. Yeah. Well, and Amaya, give me your reaction to that, because it was just one thing after another thing after another thing that just demonstrated how tenuous any kind of happiness or autonomy that a Black person in that society could have. How did you react to that? I reacted with great interest to just like how many different ways different people had power over others. Yeah, especially the part with um, in the case of marriage and children when it came to slaves, how I I was interested in how complicated that was and how um, a lot of slave owners use that to their advantage. Like specifically when it was mentioned that Tom sold some of Sarah's children, but kept one as a way to try and like make sure she didn't like uh, run away or something, or take um, her own life or something like that. He kept he kept a reason yeah. for her to live and to serve him. That really interested me a lot. Just how complicated it could be with a lot of stuff like that, and but, and the um, psychological torture that yeah, was going that, on at the same time. Yeah, that's t- honest. Yeah, straight up. That's straight up torture. The one that interested me the most was the fact that um, Dana actually kind of had a level of intellectual power over uh, specifically Tom. Um, and Tom Wayland is the father of this family. Rufus is yeah, the son yeah. that, that Dana is going back to save. But Tom Wayland is the, the patriarch. And and so we know Dana's smarter than Tom. Yeah. <laughs> How did Tom feel about that, Amaya? I think he was mostly envious of that. 
Luke is an enslaved person who is also yeah. clearly much smarter than Tom, his so-called yeah. master. <laughs> and um, when we first go back in time, Luke is in the role of an overseer. So he is actually, you know, making sure that the other slaves are working in the fields and, and getting their jobs done. So Tom has given him that power. And then we come back again later and Tom has sold Luke. And, you know, here we saw this man who was so intelligent and was working within this terrible power structure and even I think Lakeisha, didn't he say to Dana at one point, like, oh, you listen to what they say and then you do what you need to do? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was Luke's advice. Yeah. Yeah. That was Luke's advice. Um, unfortunately, that's one of the reasons why Luke gets sold. I mean, and again, this shows the extent to which um, African-Americans, black people in America who have attained educational success, right, are are definitely seen as a threat to the powers that be and I don't and that does that doesn't mean just like traditional forms of education I mean we're talking about um, an understanding of of oneself as learned and knowledgeable about how things work and knowing how to use those systems to one's advantage and I think Luke was very successful at that for a long time um, and then you know, the powers that be had enough and he was sold away. And I think Dana, because she is from another time, I think Tom doesn't know what to do about that. I mean, he still, he at first he doesn't agree, think that she's from another time, but then he figures, okay, well, it looks like you come here every time my son needs you. So you just better do your job. Right. And so that was his way of, of it, putting her existence and who she was into perspective based on his worldview. Right. As she, if she belonged to Rufus because he could call her. Exactly. exactly. Well, and, there, and there's so much desperation um, <laughs> around maintaining power or maintaining control, even if it's a perceived control, you know, towards the end, that whole theme of don't leave me and the degree to which, you know, Rufus will go to ensure that the, the women he, he thinks he loves um, won't leave him. It's just, it's, there's so much desperation that emerges when a person, the, the, the powers that be, uh, recognize a potential loss of control. And even in present day, I think we can see that playing out in a variety of different arenas, including political arenas. So yeah, don't leave me and stay in your place. Like stay right. exactly where you need to be. And I have to feel comfortable as you mm -hmm. exist in that. Right. Space. Make me feel think, good about it. Exactly. It's those it's those moments when black women, people of color, whoever's in the marginalized group, when we start to move outside those strict boundaries in institutions where we are. Um, and again, I'm thinking of the plantation system as a kind of institution of white supremacy, right? When we start to move beyond that, when we think that we can, you know exists outside of that when we think we can run for president when we think we can <laughs> make sure that everyone has the right to vote i mean these are all things that are happening all around us there's this struggle let's talk about rufus because okay he was he was this child the first time that she went back he was a child the second time she went back so so she saw him grow up but one of the the most powerful things about this novel is that Octavia Butler 
makes Rufus, who would be so easy to demonize and dismiss as a monster, a man that we can understand. She creates this empathy between the reader and Rufus and between Dana and Rufus. Even Dana cannot fully hate Rufus. And with Rufus, Butler shows us how any one of us could be part of something that monstrous. There's the potential for that, right? And I think with Kevin and Rufus, I I wanted to really just be allowed to despise Rufus and be allowed to see Kevin as an ally. And it's just certainly not that simple for any of us. Um, And I think that just in terms of the, the writing, the way she over time throughout the novel created opportunity for the reader's um, perception through Dana uh, of Kevin and Rufus to be blurred. Literally at times as she was waking up from these various episodes, she couldn't quite tell which white man she was looking at as she was waking up, if it was Rufus or Kevin, and also couldn't quite tell where she was in the context of home. And so I think to some degree, it's it's a really interesting um, exploration of what are we what are we each capable of becoming in in the context of of our times. But I also think it's a challenge, right? Just you don't have to become a person of your time. Dana having power over whether or not Rufus lives, she's enslaved by that sense of responsibility to her lineage. I mean, there's just so many elements of enslavement and empowerment. And to what degree, going back, Lakeisha, to what you were describing, am I my brother's keeper in all contexts? Um, to what degree are we are we uh, bound to others because we are directly connected to one another? One's one's life, one's well being, does directly connect to our own, you know? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And even when it's clear to her that her, she will survive, that her lineage has been established because Hagar has been born, she still explained, she has to explain to Kevin, it's not that it's not that easy for you to say, okay, now you can get rid of, you can get rid of him. You don't have to save him anymore. And she's like, but do you understand what happens to all the other black people on that plantation? if he doesn't survive? Do you understand what that means for other black people? So then it becomes a question of what is my responsibility as an African-American, not just to my family, but to my larger African-American community that will um, have to deal with the consequences of my actions, right? So I feel like that was a moment where we would think that you could click and say, okay, now I, I can, I've guaranteed that Hagar is alive and that I will eventually be born. Mm-hmm. Now I can just let this man go. Cause I had no empathy for Rufus. And, um, you know, so when Charity, when you were talking about empathy, I was just like, uh, it depends on the reader. It depends, <laughs> you know, I mean, I tolerated Rufus. I thought, yeah. you know, I could imagine him as a cute little kid the first few times, but I quickly turned into the reader that detested him. Yeah. And I think that his existence allowed me to look carefully. My hatred for him allowed me to be very um, attentive to my responses to Kevin, who I think represents a kind of anti-racist, liberal, white sensibility that I encounter all around me, right? And, And really thinking about the dynamics of that relationship, right? Um, 
where the, the racism and the sexism and the horror of, um, you know, these institutions of oppression aren't so vividly represented in your one-on-one -on -one interactions with them. So there's a more, there's this intimacy and a kind of invisibility, but you know, you have moments where you see the um, the ghost of white privilege or whatever rearing its ugly head, even in some of our closest relationships across race. Thank you to Akwi Inji and Amaya Dawson of Cedar Rapids and to Lakeisha Johnson of Grinnell College. We've been talking about Kindred by Octavia Butler. A miniseries based on the novel begins streaming on Hulu on December 13th. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.